Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. I love this question. What's the deal with animals? <laughs> what do I think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals, for one, I think is off. they're awesome. So what do you think is the deal with animals? This episode is part two of the Emerging Voices for Animals in Tourism Conference miniseries. We're releasing these episodes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the two weeks surrounding the conference itself. If you missed the first episode where I talked to Nora Livingstone about the conference as well as her own work for Animals in Tourism, it published Friday, March 3rd, 2023. So if you haven't listened to that yet, you definitely don't have to listen to these in order, but if you're not attending the conference, it's nice to be able to hear some of the speakers talk a little bit about their work. And if you're going to the conference, this just adds a little bit of extra detail about the speakers themselves, some other projects they're working on or interests that they have. Hopefully, I'll ask some of the questions that you're too shy or busy to ask, and if you do have questions you'd like me to specifically ask, go ahead and send me a message on Twitter at TDWA Podcast. Now, Al-Tamush Saeed is a Pakistan-based animal rights lawyer currently pursuing an LLM in animal law at the Center for Animal Law Studies at the Lewis and Clark Law School. And among many other projects, he's also co-founder and director of Charity Doings Foundation. I'll be talking to Altamush about zoological gardens in Pakistan and how he got started in animal welfare and how his foundation is helping to provide fresh water for both humans and the canines in his home country. Could I ask you to please introduce yourself and share your pronouns? My name is Altamush Saeed and my pronouns are he and him. Yeah, and we're here today to talk Emerging Voices for Animals in Tourism Conference. And you're going to be presenting. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your presentation is about? Uh, so my presentation is actually titled An Animal Edutourism Behind Bars, The Dystopian Future. So it's, it's actually a dark image, but I think people should be not be oblivious to the fact of what really happens inside many of these enclosures, for example, and the basic ones that everybody knows about. That's why I'm focusing on more on zoological gardens because almost everybody has been through them. Okay, let me stop you there for just a second. Just for the people who haven't been through them, okay. why don't you describe, paint a little picture for us if we are traveling to Pakistan. This is all in Pakistan, correct? Yeah, absolutely. We're traveling to Pakistan and we want to see animals mm -hmm. in a zoo type location. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah. Uh, so what what would... I mean, if you're an animal person, you'll see something very differently. But if you're just going or enjoying the animals or just trying to have a good time, you the, the image you'll get in your head will be completely different. So okay. I'll, I'll give both of them, actually. And I'll start with the, with the normal human person impression, which I had when I was like a young kid many years ago when I went to the zoo. It was actually like a family adventure, families, and it's a, like there, this, these zoos are actually an embedded part of our culture and many kids actually look forward to going there. 
but unfortunately they do not realize that these animals are actually behind bars and they have a different perspective. So if you actually go as a, and as an animal rights person, you will see only cages. That's, that's how I would define it. So you feel it's an interesting perspective, how, how some people may view the experience of visiting one of these gardens versus another. And do you feel like there's any difference between a zoo with bars or a zoo, more contemporary zoos that try to make it a little bit more like a habitat and less like, like a, a safari. Cage. Yeah. So we have a couple of those and those are actually called safari zoos. And there is one actually from where I am from, Lahore. It's a, it's a major city. We have a, we have a big zoo and we also have a safari zone. So I will try to take my animal head off for a second. It's actually a very refreshing experience because you are seeing the animal in the wild. And a couple of good things about that experience is that the animal might exhibit his species specific behaviors. For example, a lion, you will never see a lion alone. It is always in its herd protecting its family. And, and it's almost always with the lioness. And actually, this is something that I've learned through my experiences. I may be wrong, but I think it's actually the lioness who, who runs the pack. The lion is actually just there for fudge. And those things you will never see inside each zoo, for example, the Lahore Zoo, because animals by nature need a lot of space. They have these herds and they cannot actually live alone. So, and fortunately, the Lahore Zoo actually had a couple lions in one of these enclosures. So I would say two male lions and two lionesses, they were there. But unfortunately, and as you can understand, the temperature in the summer is in Pakistan. It's very, very close to the equator. So in Fahrenheit, we are almost always in summer above 100. Like that's the average. And with that temperature, it's it's really hard for the the lion to just basically, you know, just breathe normally there. And and as a, basically as a mechanism to overcome that, the zoo people just put some slabs of ice there just to compensate, but it doesn't make a difference because the whole place is cased and the ventilation system it's not that good. And the animals, the lions especially, who are charismatic creatures and in tourism, we almost always see charismatic creatures who are kept behind these enclosures. So those animals or those lions are actually, they're just lying down. They're doing nothing because it's not motivating or nurturing for them. You will see a few of these things in a good way in a safari zone. But unfortunately, and which is, this is something any zoocentric perspective person would say, you actually do not have their consent. They're just there without their permission. And that kind of debases the whole system. That's actually mm-hmm. what is very concerning to me that in any relationship that we have with animals, we can actually never get their consent. But I would not like to go there. That would be an off topic, another podcast. <laughs> A whole nother episode. Yeah, absolutely. So that's how you would see it. Safari is a little bit better, but not better for the animal. So there's just an improvement in the human perspective. And our our bar or regular part of the zoo, pretty typical. I mean, a lot of the zoos around here have phased bars out. So you're actually looking through glass or over a moat or something like that. So you're not actually seeing bars anymore. Are you actually seeing physical bars? And in the does zoo, that even yes. Matter? In the zoo, yes, we see the physical bars, uh, but in the safari zones, we actually go in jeeps. They're they're mm-hmm. locked, so the animal is just sitting outside. Right. Okay. And do you feel like 
if, if the zoos were to replace bars with glass or again, make the, the smaller habitats more natural, even if it's not a safari, is that any better? I, I guess what what would be your goal in, in, in what you're doing? Firstly speaking, there should not be any zoos because you don't need them. And, and, and fortunately, I can prove this with the example that Lahore Zoo is actually, it was built before Pakistan was founded in 1947. It was made by the Britishers when they were ruling this country. And they had built up the zoo in the 1800s and there were no regulations at all. And the zoo existed like that for hundred years until somebody thought we should have regulations. The zoos actually were hundred years before there were any laws to regulate those same zoos. And when you look at that picture, you understand to begin with, actually there was not enough knowledge like, and most, they just wanted to see them. But as how technology and our ethics and our philosophy has developed in the last 200 years, Starting from Bentham, I would not go there, another podcast, but we actually do not need zoos anymore because the only benefit that they serve now is actually an educational benefit, which can be now fulfilled through holographic zoos, or you can actually introduce courses in classrooms where teaching people or students about these animals. So that knowledge is never lost. And the other perspective that zoos actually can benefit or, or give to the animals is just that they can increase the population of endangered species. And that has happened in a, in a few zoos. Like for example, I'm in Oregon, so I visited this zoo uh, for a class trip and I learned that the, the population for Californian condors who are these huge, amazing birds, they were actually about declining and they were almost about to get extinct. I would say there were like almost 10 or nine left and the zoo, Oregon Zoo actually rubbed on and worked on, on them for several years, and now they're like almost 500. So that is something a zoo can do, but I would actually rename a zoological garden to, I mean, in my perspective, like an endangered species site or like a recovery center or a sanctuary. It's definitely not a zoo because it should not be a zoo because the main idea about this conference that I really like, and I, and I would like to challenge it, I didn't, haven't seen it yet. Tourism is actually kind of like a pay-per-view event where somebody is paying to actually watch that animal. And if we break that whole conversation like in, in pieces, we firstly see that the animal has not consented to, to being viewed like that. And the other thing is the, anim the human beings who are actually paying. Can, and the only benefit that they derive from, from going to a zoo is firstly educational. That is like no longer the case anymore. You can get, get knowledge anywhere you want. And the second is just to have a good experience. But how can you like have a good experience when the animal on the other side of your vein cannot have the same experience? Mm -hmm. That just doesn't strike well to me. Yeah. I actually took my daughters to the zoo near here, the Woodland Park, a few weeks ago. And I used to actually work there as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. uh, before I got into animal advocacy the way I am now. And and we, I, we were walking through, and I see zoos, as you say, very differently than I used to. Although mm -hmm. I think even when I used to be there, it, it would always sort of make me a little bit um, to see the animals. But I had this whole idea in my head of, animal, of zoos as arcs and places of sanctuary, as you're saying. But this idea of having to exhibit the animals, putting them on display, is not one that is really argued, I feel like, within, you know, 
not within the the animal advocacy groups obviously talk about that but outside of that people just don't really think about that aspect of it i feel and and one particular one was really drove it home for me when we were there we went to the gorilla exhibit mm-hmm. and i don't have you ever been to woodland park i've actually not been outside of michigan and oregon so it's it's considered one of the better zoos in the country because the habitats are very naturalistic. There's glass. There's no bar. Um, with the gorilla habitat, you're you know the gorillas hang out by the glass most of the time. It seems like like if you're going to go and see them, you they will be there. And and on this particular day, they were all napping, mm-hmm. and everybody was asleep. It was kind of a chilly day, and they gathered up you know little nests of straw and. And they were all having a really nice looking snooze. You know, you just kind of wanted to cuddle up with them. And I I was walking through and I was trying to keep my girls quiet because I was very aware that these guys were sleeping and we were walking basically through their bedroom. And it felt really intrusive, you know, just yeah. you're like walking right through their living room, right through their bedrooms. And, and the first part of me thought, well, you know, if they wanted, if they didn't want to be here, they could go to the back of their habitat. But then I realized this was that part that was covered, right? This was the part that the keepers had filled with straw. This was the display area, but it was also the most comfortable area. So, of course, they're going to want to sleep there, even though everybody is there sort of staring at them. And then I walked up and there was a mom and her baby cuddled up together, just like I sleep with my three-year-old. This was like a, a year or two old toddler gorilla cuddled up with his mom. and. And it really just struck me how intrusive it really was. Not just a little bit, but here we were sort of voyeuristically looking at this family moment, this really intimate family moment between a mom and baby without their consent, without, you know, any kind of permission at all. And it really made me feel very uncomfortable with that idea that, that I, you know, that someone might walk through my bedroom and do the same thing. And do you, I mean, is that anthropomorphic? Should we even be worried about that? I feel like I know what you're going to say. I feel like you've heard this answer so many, many times, but there's this, but I'll give you a different answer. It will be the same answer, but different words. Have you heard about the concept of umwelt? Right. You have? Yeah. That's good. So that's actually the animal's perspective and seeing the world from how he sees it. And I really love this example. It's not about a zoo. It's actually about just a rose petal, a small rose. What, what does a rose mean to you? I just, just want to know. Like if you give it to someone, like you're expressing love or something, right? Hmm. That's, that's, that's what's normal. But imagine if there's like a small beetle on that rose. What does that rose now mean to that beetle? It's his home. He lives there. He will probably die there. He will probably lay his eggs there. He'll probably meet someone there. And that's also the place where these small insects will land on. That's where he will hunt. That's his whole life. Now imagine yourself in a zoo situation and that the example that you just gave about the, the gorilla, the, the experience of families is, is actually not limited just to human beings. That's the anthropomorphizing part. And it's really hard to get rid of it because we don't know what the animal is really feeling. We can only ask them questions that we think about ourselves. For example, why does the, why were the gorillas, for example, sleeping at that point? 
you entered a part of it like that was the most comfortable area. That's understandable. That's what humans would do. But maybe there were more reasons. You and I both don't know those. And can we ever know them? That's the hard part. That's a struggle. And if you have the answer to that, I think we have almost very close to our goal. Did that make sense? Yeah. So, so do you feel that we should be concerning ourselves with how the animals feel about it? Or are we just concerned with how it makes us feel? How the animals feel about it. That's unwelt. That's the animal's perspective. But that how... should be our concern. Yes, absolutely. Even if we can't actually imagine it. We can try. We, we do that with, with actually our elders who are in need and sometimes they cannot speak. We do that with, I mean, with human beings who are disabled. We help them. We don't like have to assume that it would be good to like put them in some kind of a condition where they cannot move. We do that with humans all the time. We do that with our mothers. So the only problem in, in doing that with animals is actually we don't know how they quantify their behavior. How do they think or how do they do things? For example, a, the reason why a dog, you know, he, he's really good at smelling and sniffing is because of his ears. He has these really big ears and when they flap, they actually produce a lot of air. And the nostrils of dogs, you may have noticed, are actually much bigger than, than other species. So when all of that, that smell goes in, all that air goes in, is the reason why the dog is actually able to sniff at a much better frequency than human beings. And one of the reasons is that the dog's size is actually, you may have noticed this, and I think you will notice this now after you see a dog, is his face is actually pointed downwards. It's like towards the earth. And that's how he is built. And that is the reason why also he's also really good at sniffing and trying to find out smells. Because for a dog, I mean, you know, for example, and, and I know dogs are not kept inside zoos or it's not directly related to tourism, but dogs are the animals that almost everybody can associate with. That's why I'm using this example. And if you ever use perfume on yourself, that's actually an insult to the dog because what the dog sees is not through his eyes. He sees through his smell. His olfactory photograph is how he sees the world. And you can only understand that if you try to embody the experience of Omwelt or the zoocentric perspective of what an animal might really want. And you can do that with all animals, but that's a lot of research. But to go there, you actually just start need to care. That's the first step. And it's not that hard. So what are the current laws that protect the animals in this? In Pakistan, so we have like municipal corporations in almost every province. And Pakistan is kind of like the U.S. So we have states who have their own laws and, and the federal also has its laws, but the federal laws only prevent in, in the situation when the states have not made their own specific laws on that topic. Only then does the federal law apply. And for a really, really long time, and this is the unfortunate part, I hope people already knew about it, but the first animal protection cruelty law that we had in our country was actually established in 1890. And that was actually based after the New York ASPCA Act that Henry Berg actually introduced in 1866 in New York. That was like the start. And even still, that is our current law that hasn't been updated for 133 years. And that basically applies to all animals, but in particularly to zoos, we have specialized laws like the, the wildlife laws. And, and those are also pretty old, I would say. They were like established in 1974. 
And a very particular zoo in, in my country, which is the Lahore Zoo, has his own special laws that were actually made in 2012. And now I'm going to like talk about the protection. For example, I was, you know, just an hour ago, I was feeling really like I wanted to eat something. And then I thought, how would an animal feel when he's inside a zoo and he wants to eat like he's hungry? How does he tell? And the enforcement of the laws, I, I would like to actually share a story. And this, this is a real story. So I'm not uh, making it up. It actually happened in the Samba Zoo, which is actually part of my presentation that I'll share in, in the main conference, which, and this case actually like started in 2012, the 2020, where the whole zoo was shut down. And an elephant who lived in confinement in 33 years, for 30 years in that zoo, was actually eventually shifted to a sanctuary in Sri Lanka, Cambodia. So in that, and, and one of the aggravating factors, which led to the release of that elephant ultimately, and there were several, one of them was actually the workers were actually stealing the elephant's food. There was no enforcement. And on the paper, we have a few laws, like getting them the ventilation and everything, but they're not properly enforced. Hmm. So to to like, you know, forward that conversation, we actually need lots of community engagement and protest and these kinds of things. And that's what actually one of my main reasons why I really wanted to present to actually give a Pakistani voice on animals and zoos inside our country. And the, the good thing is actually because of the 2020 case, which I will discuss in my main presentation later is a landmark case for Pakistan animal welfare laws. And it started with a zoo. Eventually it was about relocating this elephant named Calvin. And this became like a worldwide sensation actually in 2020. And he had been living in that zoo for 33 years. And he came as a one year old from Sri Lanka. And in 2012, he lost his partner. So he was living alone. And there are no laws in the books to understand the species specific behaviors of elephants. For example, we, we, we both know that elephants can never live in a herd of at least like lesser than seven to eight. And he was just one. He was living alone for eight years and he had developed this condition of called zoocosis, which is basically where he was just continuously headbutting his head to the wall. And even so, there are actually no protections to circumvent this. And then eventually through, through a lot of protests on which I've also worked on as well, like when I had no clue what, what I could do. And that's like why I later became a lawyer. And through those protests and for like five years of extensive hard work by a lot of people in Pakistan, that elephant was eventually released. And it was a whole amazing story because what happened afterwards was, which, which is something that was not asked for, they shut down the whole zoo because the conditions were not good. And uh, there were a couple of bears who were relocated from that zoo. And as you all both know, zoos actually need a very colder climate. So they were living miserably. So protections against temperature are also not on the lawns. And uh, all of these aggravating factors came together to, re to basically release not only that elephant, but those beers and a couple other things and shutting down the whole zoo. So that was in 2020. And uh, the movement is actually going really strong, but there's a fear that it might, might die. So conversations like these are really important. And that's also one of my other goals, why I really wanted to present this case and another case that I did, but that would be too much information for now for the conference. 
Yeah, share that one at the conference. That's, ex I guess, you'd mentioned a little bit about protests and people really standing up for the animals against what was going on in the. Uh, is that what people, you know, the average person can do? Is that is that what they should be doing, or are there other things that people can do from other parts of the world? So th there are a lot of factors that, and and this this makes this question really tough. Is because Pakistan is is a religious country, and fortunately, the, our religion actually promotes animal welfare. But that part has been completely ignored, and religion was actually one of the reasons why the the elephant was eventually released. But other factors that I really want to put forth is actually the country's financial condition, especially in the global south. The temperatures and all the the literacy rate, which is not that good in the country, and basically just conversations where humans rights are actually not protected that much. It's it's actually really hard to make people even think about protecting animals generally. And if you are able to successfully, for some reason, able to cover that hurdle, you can do actually a lot. So the SPCA was actually re recently reestablished in our country. It was inactive for like a hundred years. And they have these a couple of uh, animal control officers and any any individual person can file a complaint to them to report animal cruelty. And uh, protests are actually one of the easiest things, but gathering a lot of people is actually really hard. So when I started, the first protest that we had, actually it was about dogs. We just had 10 people and uh, that eventually grew. I mean, that issue is something that also became part of this petition that I will discuss in my conference, but protests, writing to the editor, which is very common in the U.S., you can do that. You can write to the SPCA or you can also, I mean, litigation is expensive. I would not say and, and any person in the general layman sense would, would go for that. So that would be hard, but a couple of grassroots efforts, fundraising, teaching courses, that is something generally people in Pakistan can do. And uh, I think you also asked me about what people outside of Pakistan can do, right? So the story in Plavan actually, do you know about this, uh, this singer called Cher? She was the reason, one of the biggest reasons why that elephant was eventually released. She started a whole campaign. And that basically pushed Pakistan to rethink its priorities for, for Kavan, the elephant. And she actually, with, with Four Paws International, which is another big organization, they basically took the responsibility that when that Kavan would be released, they would take care of the whole procedure of transportation. Basically, if the animal dies, it's on them. So, but they were experts. So they took that responsibility and these two groups, along with a couple very positive voices in Pakistan for animals, was the reason why Kavan was eventually relocated in Cambodia. So this was like a, this happened because of people outside of Pakistan, not inside. Interesting. So there is, there's a lot that people can do, especially if you're share. Yeah. Especially if you're her. Okay. So speaking of the conference, Emerging Voices for Animals and Tour, uh, this is your first. What are you most excited to hear from other speakers? A lot, actually. And the topics, like, they're, they're all very fascinating. And this is actually one of my experiences. I'm, I'm actually an animal law element student at Lewis and Clark Law School. I'm just the second person for Pakistan to do this. So there's a lot to learn and everywhere it's like more knowledge. 
So, and I would say I like, I would like to listen to all of them, but I had a couple like five topics that I'm more interested in. And one of them is actually from a voice in Pakistan. It's actually about Sufism and mysticism related to animal welfare. So I think that's fascinating because I haven't explored that idea yet. And the other is actually about insects. And that is actually very fascinating to see how insects interact with human beings. Because that puts you in a different conversation, for example, about this is something everybody can relate with. Do you have rats in your home by any chance? Like wild rats or pet rats? I mean, the answer is no to both, but I've had both in the past. (laughs) So the relationship that we have with those wild rats is actually something that's very relevant to the insect and human relationship. We don't care about both of them. That's the unfortunate part. But uh, oh, we care. We just don't want them in our house. I would argue otherwise. Care in a very negative way. Let's just say that. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not a family caring. Yeah. But if, if you look at the companion animal law definition in any state, generally a few principles of those definitions would be an animal that has lived with you and is domesticated inside your home. So does that mm. make rodents your companion animals? I mean, the answer is no, of course, but theoretically you can say yes, because, and, and because we value our dogs and cats so much, but why can't we value them, even though it's the same legal relationship. So that insect topic is something I'm really interested in on how these interactions happen. Another one is actually about veganism as a culture, because it's actually expanding all over the world. And they were actually, I've read a couple of cases in the U.S., they were like, very consistent efforts in the past to declare veganism as a religion. Because if that happens, the first minute and everything, the whole conversation changes. So, and, and I'm also vegan, but I'm one of the very few in my country. So I'm actually looking forward to more ideas and how to basically propagate that culture. And the last one is actually about uh, Myanmar elephants. And that's actually one of my own personal interests in generally elephants because this common case is about the elephant. So these are like the four main ones that I'm really interested in, but I would try as much as I can to listen to more of these, like other than these even. Yeah. Yeah. Those all sound really interesting. The the, the insect is an interesting idea too, because it's not the animal you think of when you think about tourist attractions, although I've definitely seen insects in tourist attractions. Uh, When I lived in Singapore for a couple of years, I remember specifically going to an insect museum and and even like the butterfly exhibits, you know, those are very popular in zoos at them. So I I do wonder how, you know, how people are going to, to respond to to that in general. I think when a lot of people are thinking about animals and tourism, they're thinking about protecting you know, horses, charismatic um, species, yeah, or, yeah the charismatic ones. species, exactly the big one. Um, or even you know the lizards that are part of a, a roadside zoo. Yeah. But but yeah, in, uh, people don't really bat an eye at typically. You know, if you saw a roadside zoo that was all insects, you probably wouldn't be as worried about their wealth. Uh, most people probably would. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I will. I will look forward to hearing that one as well. Yeah, it's it's a great conf. Um, I, I attended last year and learned a whole lot of new things about animals and tour. Um, I was really excited to to attend this year and to do this mini series this year on the conference because I just felt that it was not only a really good conversation to be having, mm-hmm. but also a great way to 
open up the you know the, the platform essentially for for new voices for for new academics new researchers to share what they've been learning because it it, it feels like there are a lot more people now willing to push the envelope a little bit when it comes to what our expectations should be around how we treat animals? Yeah, actually, that is true. And I would say the movement actually started in the global north, which is actually the unfortunate part in many of the countries. And this is a much bigger conversation. Like, for example, Pakistan was colonized a long time ago. That had a huge part to play in how, how our people could actually, you know, be a part of the conversation. And... Uh, Many countries, especially in South Africa, who were just recently separated, like established as independent countries, they were going through a lot already. And if you may think about most of our wildlife is in Africa, especially the wild ones, and they, many of them become part of the tourism trade. So those people actually didn't even have the avenue to be part of the conversation. So that's actually something that I really love about EVAC. And almost everybody is from everywhere. And the, the, the most amazing thing is actually about the different diversity and the, all the culture that's coming in. So everybody will offer their different perspectives, but this, this, this global culture about animals and tourism, that's what I'm really, really fascinated about. If somebody thought about it and just, just put it up. Wow. Yeah, agreed. It's, it's great that it's even happening and exciting to be part of it, really, as Absolutely. I'm sure you are as well. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask uh, the questions that I ask all of the guests. Which, okay. uh, the first one is, if there was a book that you could gift to all of the listeners, what would... So it has to be one book, right? Well, you know, I have some people who like to share a couple. Yeah, I would like to actually go with a couple because I couldn't, like, you know, cut it down. It was hard. And uh, this one is I'm reading for, for one of my classes, and I think everybody should read it. It's actually called Inside of a Dog. It's from Alexander Horowitz. I'm pretty sure you've already heard about it. And uh, that book actually talks about the dog's perspective about living with his human. And that's, and, and the concept of well, the animal perspective is extensively shared in that book. But the special thing about that book is actually it's not written for scientists or lawyers. It's written for a general audience. So anybody can understand the experience of, of a beetle or a dog or a flower. My flower example is actually from that book. So, so it's, it's an excellent book. And the other book that I just, I would say everybody should read, it's, it's, it's not animal centric. It's actually just about the modern revolutions. It's, it's called Manifesto for a Modern Revolution from Jacqueline Novogratz. And she is actually the founder of the Ackerman Fund, which, which basically gives funding all over the country to indigenous organizations that are actually trying to bring their community together. And uh, there's not a lot about animals in there, but there's a lot of life lessons. For and, and a few of them I follow in my personal life as well. And my favorite one is actually about just starting and let the, let the experience teach you. And that's how I do things. I, I don't see the full picture as many of us don't do, but uh, we're in it. Like the animal welfare movement itself, it's very young. We don't see what the future will be because there are many questions, you know, like, what if we abolish property? What happens? I don't know. What, what if we give the animals legal personhood? What happens then? No idea. But it's interesting. So, and we, you know, cross these bridges one at a time. So that's what's very special about that book. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting book. I will have to get that one. 
But of course, inside of a dog, I, I read when it first came out, and yes, it's a great overview uh, a dog's envelop and yeah. you know what what we can think about when we're having experiences with our canine companions. Yeah, and and the best thing, like the starting bit, I'm sure you already remembered this. I love this quote, which he mentions the book. Outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. It's too dark oh. to read. Yeah, that's a um, Groucho Marx, I, I believe. Know. Yeah, that's him. Yes, one of but, my dad's favorite. But it's very deep, you know. So it actually trying to say is that it's really hard to read dogs. It's not just literal. It's if you go deep inside, it's it's really hard, and you have to give them the chance to show their behavior. That's how you will learn. Give them the ropes. So that's nice. what I love about it. Would you share your earliest memory of your connection with animals? I would actually share the most formative one. Okay. I mean, I've had many actually, but four years ago, a cat actually walked into my home. She was a rescue. Like she just walked into my home. So, and she became part of our family. She changed me, my family, my parents, everybody. And then she went out. And at that point, I didn't know what spade uter was. She came back with a huge belly, and she gave birth to five kittens, five beautiful kittens, and they're all living with us. So we are like a huge family. So there's more animals in my home than my, than the humans. And we have a dog as well, which came after somebody just gifted to me because I was protesting. That cat actually started my whole animal welfare journey. She's the reason I am in this movement. And I filed a couple of cases. I'm right now doing my animal oil, all because of her. We also have a nonprofit, which is something I will, I don't think I'll ever get a chance to share, but I actually run a nonprofit in Pakistan and that's been like running since 2014. And as you may know that there was a flood last year in Pakistan and we are still actively rescuing animals and giving them emergency vet care in the flood zone. And that is something I did for the very first time, but we do that for the humans as well, because what the whole animal welfare movement actually is trying to teach you is that all life is equal. That's all what animals are trying to teach us. And if we truly emulate that, we actually have a responsibility to save all life. And we do lots of other fun stuff as well. For example, I mean, we install water projects all over a country. And the special thing about those water projects is that they're, they're for humans and animals. And we use a little bit of gravity. So the humans firstly drink the, from that water. It's very clean. And a lot of it just goes back in the water table. But what we did was we basically installed a pond where all that water goes, it stays there for five minutes, where all the animals drink, and then it goes back into the water table. And we are like introducing them all over the country. But the special thing about that project is that we don't ever tell people that they have to take care of the animals. They just bring them. So we want to, them to internalize the whole idea. And all of this is because of my cat. So she chose to change me. Yeah, she changed everything. That's beautiful. So, Altamush, what is the deal with animals? There's so many answers, but I would say animals are actually these beautiful creatures who are trying to teach us how to live life. But unfortunately, they do speak. We just cannot understand the language they speak in. And because of that, we are not able to understand whether they consent to many of the things that we do to them. So. That's the unfortunate part, but animals are trying to teach us how to live life. And no human can do that. Only an animal can. 
Thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast today and taking the time. I really appreciate it. As you are, I'm sure you're looking forward to the conference in a couple of weeks. Well, when this episode airs, the conference will be either on, going on at the moment or are just about to begin. I'm definitely looking forward to that and looking forward to hearing the rest of your talk. Likewise, thank you so much for all that you're doing for the animal welfare. That was Altamush Saeed, an animal rights lawyer from Pakistan, who is speaking at the Emerging Voices for Animals and Tourism Conference from March 8th through the 10th, 2023. And if you would like me to ask questions of the speakers at the conference this year, go ahead and send me a message on Twitter at TDWA Podcast. If you enjoyed this show and have any questions or comments about this episode or about the podcast in general, go to thedealwithanimals.com and leave me a message. This is also a great place to go if you're interested in being a guest or have an idea for a series or episode. And don't forget to follow and review wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps us become more visible to other listeners. I'm your host, Marika Bell. I'd like to thank Kai Stranskoff for the theme music and Natasha Matsark for help with editing. You can see links to guest book recommendations as well as their websites and affiliated organizations in the show notes and at thedealwithanimals.com. Thank you for joining me as we try to answer the question, What's the deal with animals? So what do you think is the deal with animals? The Deal with Animals is part of the IROR Animal Podcast Network.